2: For decades, Afghanistan has been a major source of the world's opium poppies, and thus, heroin. And the country produces mountains of hashish, too. Now, methamphetamines are on the rise, thanks in part to the native ephedra bush. And back in the 1970s, commercial radio was saturated with a particular sort of breezy, unchallenging music. Decades later, the genre got a name, yacht rock. Now, those same tracks are creeping back onto playlists, perhaps for the same sociological reasons. First up, though...
3: Any hopes they had of stopping the West Berliners destroying the Wall were soon dashed. As dozens of young men pulled on a rope and chains, the chant went up, weg, done with the Wall.
2: After the fall of communism in 1989, Hungary turned to democracy. Its new political system would be held up as an example for other Central and Eastern European states. That's not the case today. Its current democratically elected leader is Viktor Orban. He's held office once before, for four years from 1998. He was re-elected in 2010... And there's little sign he's going to lose his job anytime soon.
0: I think migration is stoppable. In many countries, especially in West Europe, politicians try to convince the people that it's not possible to stop. But I think it's not true.
2: Mr. Orban's anti-immigrant rhetoric and the accompanying policies of his party, Fidesz, mean he remains popular in a country that has little ethnic diversity. But he's also taken worrying steps to ensure his job security, steps that have catalyzed Hungary's slide into autocracy. What
1: Viktor Orban has achieved over the past nine years in Hungary is to hollow out a European democracy so that it's effectively a one-party state. Matt Steinglass is our Europe correspondent. It feels like any other middle-income European state, like a functional liberal democracy, but it's not. It's controlled by one man
2: and his political party and his friends. All of this is a far cry from the prime minister's roots, when, as a young, long-haired liberal, he urged the Hungarian people to reject communism and embrace free elections.
0: In 1989,
1: as the Soviet bloc was coming apart, Viktor Orban was a talented young law student who was identified as one of the most liberal, anti-communist voices in the Hungarian student movement. But over the course of time, he has shifted from a liberal center-right stance to an increasingly nationalistic stance. So by today, the once young liberal reformer is now a hardline nationalist ruler
2: who dominates his country's political system with an iron hand. Well, what do you mean by that? In, in what way is he is he dominant? How is Hungary different under Viktor Orbán?
1: As of the late 2000s, Hungary was seen as the most successful, possibly the most entrenched formerly communist country in Eastern Europe in terms of its transition to democracy. People saw it as a stable, capitalist, democratic, liberal country member of the European Union. And over the course of the last nine years, he has uh, changed the constitution, altered all of the institutions of the democratic state, so that they can be controlled by his political party, by businessmen, politician, businessmen, and oligarchs were linked to him. He's extended domination over the media sphere. He's hollowed
2: out the court system. But how has he managed that? How has he sort of gotten away with it starting from a stable, happy democracy so completely undermined? How do you do that?
1: Well Hungary wasn't really a tremendously happy democracy. When Orban took over, people were quite dissatisfied with the previous socialist government, which was fairly corrupt as well. But That dissatisfaction led them in 2010 to vote for Mr. Orban's party, Fidesz. They they, they won about 53% of the vote. And because of the Hungarian electoral system, that 53% of the vote meant that they had two-thirds of the seats in parliament. And with two-thirds of the seats in parliament, they could change the constitution, which they quickly did. They changed the constitutional court. They revised the electoral system and gerrymandered a lot of the districts in which people were being uh, elected to make sure that they wouldn't leave. And what you found was that by 2014, by the time of the next elections, they had effectively guaranteed themselves victory. And in the 2018 elections, again, they won exactly two-thirds of the seats in parliament. At this stage, it looks like there's no power in the Hungarian system of governments that can stand up to Fidesz and Viktor Orban. And the separation of powers, which you need for a liberal democratic state, effectively
2: no longer exists in Hungary. But insofar as they actually have, why have the Hungarian people gone along with this? Is is all of this just simply below the radar, cl- clever gerrymandering and, and keeping quiet about procedural changes that don't look so nefarious? Viktor Orban and Fidesz
1: are still very popular. They're very popular because uh, nationalist politics of the kind that they practice are very appealing. Viktor Orban was the first national leader in Europe to build a fence, to block out to to block migrants in the migrant crisis of 2015. That was extremely popular. And the economy has done well. Uh, Growth has been about 3.5% for the last five years, and uh, unemployment is below 4%. But that's also true for much of Central Europe. And they've cut the budget deficit. But one of the troubling things about what's happened in Hungary is that it appears that people don't really care all that much about constitutional issues. And that is an issue that may
2: have echoes well beyond Hungary. What still surprises me about this story is how complete Mr. Orban's transformation from fist-shaking liberal to, to shoot this, this kind of like absolute autocrat. D- does that transformation kind of tell you anything about uh, the current state of right-wing leadership kind of spreading throughout Europe? Well, so
1: it's true. Viktor Orban's transformation from 1989 to 2019 is an incredible encapsulation of what has happened to the ideas that we had about liberal democracy in 1989. And what's really worrisome is that it seems like he appears to have decided that the type of liberalism that he championed at the time of the fall of the Soviet Union was naive and not actually a lasting foundation on which to build a successful political party or a successful state. He now explicitly says that he wants to govern an illiberal democracy. He doesn't believe in liberalism. He wants to govern a state in which the majority rules and takes no account of minority interests. And there are a lot of similar politicians to whom you could point around the world, not just people like Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines, but people like Donald Trump in the United States who seem to value the will of the majority rather than individual rights, who are eager to find enemies to vilify and to run campaigns based on xenophobia and one just hopes that these people are not in fact the future of democracy thank you very much for joining us matt my pleasure jason
2: Three-quarters of the world's opium is cultivated in Afghanistan. The country is also home to a thriving hashish industry. And now, drug producers in the region have found a new substance to peddle.
3: Suddenly, Afghanistan is producing and exporting large amounts of methamphetamine, not a drug it's produced before. Edward McBride is The Economist's Asia editor. Back in 2014, the Afghan authorities intercepted just four kilos of methamphetamine. In the first six months of this year alone, they seized 650 kilos. So why? Why is there this this boom in meth production? Iran, which is just next door to Afghanistan, has been producing quite a bit of meth, but there's been a big crackdown there. The authorities have tried to put meth producers there out of business. Some of those meth producers were probably migrant laborers from Afghanistan. Anyway, the meth business seems to have moved across the border with those migrant laborers returning with their expertise, maybe some of those original Iranian producers. They've all gone to the lawless western deserts of Afghanistan, and they've set up their meth production there. And making it how? Meth is made from a, a precursor chemical, well, two precursor chemicals called ephedrine and pseudoephedrine. And normally you get those out of cold and flu remedies. But governments around the world have been trying to curb meth production by making it more difficult to get hold of those cold and flu remedies, keeping better tabs on who's buying them and so on. So making meth that way has become more difficult. There is another way to make meth, which involves a natural source of ephedrine and pseudoephedrine, which is a bush called the ephedra bush. That's how the chemical got its name. And that bush happens to grow in, in Afghanistan and, and lots of arid regions of Asia. Farming is also very cheap in Afghanistan. Most of the people are, are basically subsistence farmers. It's very easy to drum up a big crop of ephedra leaves in Afghanistan and then process those to make meth. And that's what's happening.
2: So did the Afghans invent this production method?
3: This isn't a new method for making meth. And we know that ephedra has been used for centuries in traditional Chinese medicine for treating asthma and other respiratory problems, I mean, in effect, as a cold and flu medicine. In the past, drug smugglers have used ephedra to create meth, but What makes this so potent in Afghanistan is that Afghanistan already has this huge heroin business, a big hashish industry, and so it's got the ready-made distribution channel. So if they can add another drug to their portfolio, as it were, then it's very easy to get it exported and to start making money from it. So if
2: the drug trade in Afghanistan is so large, so well established, so much a part of the economy, what what effects does that have on uh, the internal dynamics of of what is clearly a very troubled country? And isn't adding another drug to that only going to
3: make matters worse? If you look at the drug trade from an outsider's perspective, of course, it's terrible, right? I mean, uh, you only need to look at the effects of heroin on addicts around the world to sort of think this is very bad news. And that's absolutely true. But of course, the reason why these drug crops spread so rapidly is because there are lots of incredibly poor subsistence farmers in Afghanistan whose only real prospect of a decent livelihood is to grow these crops. That's why they spread so fast. And the money that these crops bring in, you know, does represent a sort of genuine improvement in in their quality of life. The problem is it doesn't just feed addiction outside Afghanistan and and within Afghanistan too, but it also feeds the war in Afghanistan. The The profits from the drug trade go in large part to insurgent groups fighting the government like the Taliban, Islamic extremists like Islamic State. They also feed corruption, which is a huge problem and one of the main reasons why the government is seen as unpopular and illegitimate by many. Lots of, of local officials, local police, army chiefs and so on, they try and cash in on the drug trade. It really cur- corrodes the legitimacy of the government from within and and feeds the war, which is causing so much grief within Afghanistan. You say that for these farmers, there's
2: really no other prospect than to to grow these crops related to drugs. Is there no other cash crop in prospect for them?
3: Well, I I think the big problem in Afghanistan is related to stability and personal security and and the viability of the government, right? If circumstances were different and it was a peaceful, law-abiding country with decent infrastructure, then of course all kinds of crops might be profitable and indeed people might prefer to grow those. But in lots of parts of the country, there is no law and order. There is no realistic hope of a sort of cash crop in effect that's exported other than drugs. There's a shortage of land as well, arable land. And one of the things about drug crops is uh, they are so profitable that It's possible to pay for irrigation, for example, to feed the fields, to grow the crops. Other less profitable crops, that wouldn't be viable. No, realistically speaking, without a more peaceful situation, um, without more infrastructure, there are very few ways to make a living as a farmer. Edward, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me. On The Economist
2: Asks, our interview podcast, my colleague Ann McElvoy talks with author Margaret Atwood about how politics shapes storytelling. She's just put out the long-awaited sequel to her landmark dystopian novel The Handmaid's Tale. The hit television series based on the book has brought a new global audience to the fiction of a veteran author and activist just shy of her 80th birthday. Anne McElvoy puts her on the spot over the gains and the risks of the Me Too movement. You're no longer in phase one of me too. But there was a moment there when it was an invincible weapon to which there was no counter weapon. And whenever you have an invincible weapon to which there is no counterweapon, some people will take advantage of it, which they did.
3: And in a way, that seemed to transgress a lot of the lessons that you'd been learning from the Cold War societies. Not just the Cold you War, know, the
2: history of lynching in the United States, the history of any social moral panic in which to be accused is to be guilty. To hear more, subscribe to The Economist Asks on your podcast app. Picture in your mind sweeping ocean views, cold beers, and blood orange sunsets. And the perfect soundtrack to this idyllic scene? Yacht Rock. genre encompasses the smooth, uplifting musical stylings of 1970s America, and it's having a resurgence.
0: Yacht Rock is a drippingly smooth, highly polished, uplifting type of music that came out of America's West Coast in the 1970s and 80s. Jack LaHart is our deputy communities editor and a passionate fan of the genre. And it has a distinctive sense of escapism and an ability to transport you out of wherever you are and drop you right in California An early example which epitomizes this type of music is Seals and Crofts Summer Breeze single from
3: 1972 Summer Breeze makes me feel fine
0: That's a really early example of yacht rock But the best example for me of Yacht Rock is the Doobie Brothers' What a Fool Believes from their 1978 album, Minute by Minute. And maybe one of the most famous examples, of course, is uh, Toto's Africa from their 1982 album, Toto
3: 4.
0: Which reached the number one spot in America's Billboard Hot 100 in 1983.
2: So how did this genre get started?
0: So it was born in 1970s L.A. and San Francisco, and it really centered around L.A. studio musicians. So many of those who had protested against war and, and preached free love in, in the decade before began to find a home for their gently catchy tunes on drive-time radio.
2: Okay, so where did it go? Why, why did it disappear?
0: Really, I think the turning point came in 1981 when MTV launched, and that really changed the game for for musicians around the world. This is it.
3: Welcome to MTV Music Television, the world's first 24-hour
0: stereo video music channel. Music became flashier and more aggressive and began to rely much heavier on disco influences and heavier electronic sounds. So for years, Yacht Rock was seen as uncool. It was consigned to wedding parties and dusty record collections and came to be seen as the epitome of 1980s schmaltzy, uncool dad music.
2: But what you're seeing is that the wind in its way is back in the sails of Yacht Rock now.
0: Yeah, definitely. Now on Spotify, there's playlists that have hundreds of thousands of followers. And then also, if you look at things like Google searches for Yacht Rock, they've steadily climbed since the 2010s. And you see this nice little spike in summer months when people try and seek out that distinctive West Coast sound and that summery, breezy beat that Yacht Rock has.
2: And when people are seeking it out, are they looking back to these classics or are are there new yachtsmen?
0: They're definitely looking back for these classics. But I think a testament to the influence of this Genre of music is the fact that so many modern-day artists look back to it and include traits in their music today. And some examples include "Fragments of Time" by Daft Punk, and if you listen to Vampire Weekend, many of their tracks have distinctive yacht qualities to them. If you're looking for a more blatant tribute, then I think you need look no further than Thundercats. Show you the way, which actually features Michael McDonald and and Kenny Kenny Loggins. That's from Thundercat's 2017 album, Drunk. Mark Ronson's latest album, Late Night Feelings, which just came out this year, has distinctive yacht sounds to it as well.
2: So why do you think this is happening? Why is yacht rock coming out of the dry dock?
0: So I think there are two reasons. The first is that technology that I mentioned, which is opening up this genre of music to a whole new generation. So things like YouTube, Spotify, and Google. The second reason I think might be a little bit more sinister. So this type of music came out of America at a time when society was changing and there was a lot of cultural tension. You had Watergate and the end of the Vietnam War. You had the presidencies of Carter and Gerald Ford, energy crises and economic stagnation. And the key thing about Yacht Rock is that it gives you a sense of escapism, and it took Americans to a sunny California, away from the daily grind. And in today's world, there's a lot of upheaval and dissatisfaction with the current political situations, and the crises are different, climate change, for example. So the anxieties that we have today may be slightly different from what people were experiencing in the 70s and 80s, but... That need and desire to seek out a feel-good tune remains the same, and I think that's behind Yacht's resurgence. Jack, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me.
2: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence, If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here on Monday.
3: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.